This is Guns and Butter. Our intention was to expose this uh, whaling operation. And as I was filming uh, these events that I just described, uh, gray whales were surrounding our ship and breaching and, you know, spouting. I mean, it was so cosmic. Uh, one of the crew members, he came up to me and he was like shaking me and said, John, you've got to get this on film. You, This is so weird. We're being chased by Soviet troops and, uh, you know, gunboats and, and these whales are breaching all around the Rainbow Warrior. And, um, that that's the uh, the beauty of the cosmic side of this whole thing. That that was going on at the time. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, John Perulis. Today's show, the Rainbow Warrior, early campaigns. John Perulis is an artist, activist, and filmmaker. He has a varied career as a filmmaker, live video streamer, artist, and licensed contractor. He served on Greenpeace ships and land actions as a cameraman from 1983 to 1986. His film work has appeared in numerous environmental documentaries and news stories, including 60 Minutes. He has climbed and summited some of the world's tallest mountains, including Alaska's Denali and Argentina's Aconcagua, where he worked as a guide for an outdoor adventure company. His video work encompasses everything from news and education to sports. He has also been an activist within the 9-11 Truth community since 2006, supplying video work and scientific materials for professional publications on the topic of the epic building collapses on September 11, 2001. John Perulis, welcome. Hi. Hi, Bonnie. John, you've enjoyed an incredibly rich and exciting life filled with political, spiritual, and humanitarian adventures. What would you say shaped your values initially? Wow. Uh, I, you know, to answer that question truthfully, it would go way back to my adolescence when I uh, uh, was uh, very disturbed at the kind of development I saw on the East Coast where I grew up, uh, you know, and uh, I became aware as a teenager how unfriendly developers were to the environment uh, when I saw them just bulldoze forests down on uh, Cape Cod where I grew up and, uh, you know, it kind of turned my thinking towards, you know, protecting natural resources like that. And of course, I, I grew up in Massachusetts. That was the home of the transcendentalists, uh, you know, the Emerson Thoreau crowd who were inspired by the British translations of Hindu scriptures like the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, you know, things like that. So uh, Emerson developed a, uh, a belief system in a theory called the Oversoul. And uh, in it, uh, he posited that a giant soul of uh, oneness uh, permeated everything in creation. And that kind of thinking just really grabbed hold of me and, you know, it kind of propelled me forward. So that's where it all started, uh, on Cape Cod and in Massachusetts.
And then in terms of your adolescence or your young adulthood, of course, mm-hmm. you went away to college like most people did. Uh, weren't you in the ROTC? Yes, I was. Uh, my dad uh, was concerned about uh, my being drafted into the Vietnam War. And at, at the time, this is uh, 1970. And uh, he kind of pushed me into taking the Navy scholarship test. And I, I passed the test and I passed the interviews and I got the scholarship. Uh, they gave me a, a full four-year scholarship to the college of my choice provided they had a ROTC program. So I selected uh, Holy Cross College in, in Massachusetts and they had an ROTC program. And that's where I uh, <laughs> ended up uh, being I would uh, on Mondays was drill day and I used to dress up in, uh, you know, a Navy blue uniform with a rifle and uh, drill with the rest of my uh, team. And then the other days I would join in the uh, Vietnam War protests going on on the campus. So I kind of had a, a, you know, a dual existence uh, when I was going through college and uh, the way I handled everything was that it was kind of a very interesting play that I was a participant in. Well, now, um, you have mentioned to me previously that you had experience in the Navy. How did Mm -hmm. that factor in? Well, um, on the second year, uh, we had to go on a training cruise on, on a, an active duty, uh, naval ship. And I was stationed in Mayport, Florida, uh, in the summertime, which is like being in the equator. Uh, I mean, it's just oppressively hot. And uh, anyways, I I was being trained how to um, uh, understand ship operations. And uh, they funneled us around all kinds of things, even training us in uh, some jet fighter pilot operations like how to escape in a rocket seat from from a, a, a plane that's been injured or try to rescue a ship that's being filled up with water. They have these test modules and, um, you know, you, you jump in there with the rest of your crew and watch the water uh, fill up uh, this room and, and you try to plug the leaks. In the, you know, they, they ran those kind of training things and also how to fire pretty deadly weapon systems. And uh, that caused me to do a lot of thinking. And the Navy had a clause in the contract where if I dropped out after two years, I wouldn't be bound uh, uh, to remain in the Navy for the next four years. Uh, You know, if you stay beyond that two-year period at the time, then uh, upon graduating, you'd have to... uh, serve in the Navy in a four-year period as a a regular seaman. So I got out, you know, and I told my dad and the captain of the ROTC there that, you know, I just didn't believe in what we were doing in the Vietnam War, and uh, I didn't want to kill people with these uh, weapons of mass destruction. They weren't called that in those days. You know, they were just called weapon systems. But, uh, you know, I was pretty clear that uh, that kind of life was not for me. And, you know, I appreciated being part of it so I could understand it. Uh, you know, I, I saw the dynamics about how the officer 
segment of the military uh, engages uh, with the enlisted segment. Uh, that that was a real eye opener for me, and um, and I appreciate that. I, I appreciate the service and the dedication that people uh, put into these things, even though they may not understand the the deadly reasons why why they're being asked to do something, but. Uh, that's not their job. Sometimes, uh, you know, like the guys that stopped the My Lai massacre, they they took the brave uh, act of actually landing their helicopter and pointing their machine guns at the troops and saying, "Hey, we'll fire on you if you if you don't stop killing these civilians." And so, sometimes uh, in, in the military, people can have uh, conscious awakenings where they actually see what what they're really doing. So anyways, I'm, I'm happy I got out. And uh, when I graduated in 1973, uh, Nixon ended the draft and it was like a ton of bricks off my head. And with that, I just uh, moved to San Francisco <laughs> quite rapidly and had a girlfriend there. And I landed in uh, a Hindu ashram as part of the uh, Eastern mysticism movement that had landed in California back in the 50s, I think, with uh, Paramahansa Yogananda and um, uh, Suzuki Roshi from Japan, you know, at the Zen, started the Zen Center in San Francisco. So I, I was part of that whole scene. Now, you ended up in an ashram in San Francisco, didn't you? Who, who yes. was the... Uh, there was a guru there from India, right? Right. He was also a medical doctor. At the time, his name was uh, Sri Ramamurti Mishra. And uh, after his enlightenment uh, in the late 80s or mid 80s, he had a stroke and um, had a spiritual awakening after that. He changed his name to Sri uh, Brahmananda Udasana. And uh, he's the author of many books. Uh, chief among those are the uh, Yoga Psychology, which is an in-depth examination of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which is an absolutely mind-blowing treatise on the nature of reality and time. And um, he wrote uh, books on the fundamentals of yoga and the eight limbs of, of yoga. So I uh, took a deep uh, involvement in the ashram life. I, I went to class every day uh, studying uh, Sanskrit scriptures, and uh, I had been going to film school at the time in San Mateo, and so I took it on myself to uh, videotape with the kind of crude equipment we had back in the early 80s, the satsangs that my guru was uh, giving. So, uh, Today, I, I am an archivist for the Yoga Society of New York, where his work was headquartered and is headquartered. And I've got close to 300 hours of material that I've been digitizing and uh, putting on a website for people. And it, that's a fascinating project. I, I think it's probably the most important thing I've done in my life. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, didn't you tell me that Ramamurshi had been a medical doctor at Bellevue in New York City? That's right. And uh, he told us that he did over a thousand autopsies. 
and he was very interested in the uh, metaphysical, physical interface of uh, human existence and the human body. And uh, he uh, just developed his whole teaching around that, how the technology of yoga can be used to improve your health and your relationship with the world. And that uh, was an important uh, aspect in my development, I would say, that kind of helped me migrate into the uh, organized environmental movement. And that, that's, you know, we were talking earlier about Greenpeace, and that, that's how I became interested in and involved in Greenpeace. It was at the ashram. Uh, Ramamurti Mishra had invited two guys that had just been released from prison. I think they spent two years in a Japanese jail for releasing dolphins in Taji. There was a famous Academy Award winning film a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, about the dolphin slaughter there. It's just still going on. And um, these guys uh, saw me videotaping and one of them came up and said, why, John, why don't you get up off your ass here and come out to see with us and uh, help us save the whales and, and marine life. And I thought about it. <laughs> one thing led to another. And uh, it was shortly after that, that I was a bona fide crew member of Greenpeace and, you know, got accepted in to the uh, camera uh, film division of it. Well, it's a fascinating story as to how you got involved with Greenpeace through an ashroom and you yeah. just happened yeah. to be able to film. Now, Greenpeace recruited you. Yes. And then, as you had told me, I guess for what, the next seven years on and off, you were paid to go out on missions yes. uh, on the Rainbow Warrior. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the, the first one I went on was in 1983. And uh, I had a young family, uh, a baby son who was, uh, oh, I think he was about six months old. Yeah, around that period. And the 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 first there was a two part mission at that time in 1983 and one was to interfere with the Japanese factory boat operation in the Bering Sea they were setting these huge drift nets uh, that are about 20 feet deep and I think they go up for miles and they're um, just dropped off and allowed to drift that's why they call them drift nets and they had uh, a radio boy that's attached to the net that gives a, a signal that allows the factory boat or, or the, the little fleet that surrounds the factory boat, the location of the net so they could find it, haul it in and haul the catch. And the problem with that is that they were catching a lot of uh, sea life like dolphins, dolphins, porpoises, uh, seabirds. And uh, our job was to uh, film this and uh, also try to cut these uh, marine animals out of the nets. And we uh, weren't able to save any uh, dolphins or seabirds, but we found dead ones wrapped up in the net. I'm speaking with artist, activist, and filmmaker John Perulis. Today's show, The Rainbow Warrior, Early Campaigns. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
The second part of this cruise uh, went up to Nome, Alaska, and uh, that one was a little bit more intense and a little bit more dangerous, and it involved uh, illegally uh, going into Lorino, Siberia, which wasn't that far away from uh, the coast of Nome, and uh, expose a uh, illegal uh, Soviet whaling operation. Uh, that was being used to uh, slaughter the gray whales, which at the time, I believe they were on the endangered species list, and, uh, you know, chop up their meat and feed it to a mink farm, a pretty extensive mink farm there. Um, w one of the founders of Greenpeace, Paul Watson, who, who left uh, Greenpeace uh, years before, had an organization called Sea Shepherd, and he did the uh, original groundwork of going there and IDing this um, illegal uh, Soviet operation. And uh, we were the ones that took up the challenge later on and actually went there and, um, you know, landed a crew. And there was a whole big adventure. Uh, the story went out all over the major news outlets and 60 Minutes did a story on it. Now, John, could you talk a little bit about your recruitment to film on the um on the rainbow warrior you met what with the captain and you made a request in order to agree to to do this right oh yeah yeah well the guy that got me uh at the ashram was patrick wall uh he's passed away um and the other guy who was instrumental in hiring me was Michael Bailey. And Michael Bailey was one of the young uh, people at that time that rode in a Zodiac and tried to stop the Soviet whaling operations. And they fired live exploding bolts out at the whales to capture them. And uh, these things used to fly right over the crewmen's heads. That, that made a lot of uh, news story and actually got Greenpeace on the map. So, uh, and then Eddie Chavies, who was head of the uh, San Francisco office, uh, I had to go through Eddie. Today, Eddie and I are still great friends and uh, also friends with Michael Bailey. Many of the crew members from that 1983 uh, adventure, I'm still friendly with. I still have regular contact with. I think it's uh, an environmental version of Band of Brothers. But uh, to get back to your question, uh, I had been doing a fire ceremony uh, morning and evening uh, that I learned at the ashram. It, it, this fire ceremony is called Agni Hotra. It involves burning a little uh, quantity of dried cow dung and rice and uh, ghee, which is clarified butter. And the uh, fire ceremony is a purification fire ceremony for the atmosphere and for the collective thought system in the vicinity of, of where this ceremony is, is performed. And it was very important to me. I, I, you know, I was a devoted spiritual student and, you know, probably somewhat manic about it. And I, I was determined to uh, see the captain, Peter Wilcox of the Rainbow Warrior at the time. And I, I had to ask him, I said, you know, I can't, I went up to the ship and found him there. And I said, hey, Peter, you know, I got to be uh, really open with you. I'm, uh, I got this fire ceremony I do. It's just a little pot. It's like a six by six pot and a uh, copper pot. And I burn a tiny piece of cow dung in it. And 
I, I got to have your permission to do this or else I'm going to have to leave. I can't, I can't go on the cruise and, or the mission. And so he looked at it and then he, he looked back at me and he said, well, okay, I'll let you do this provided that you can locate and find every single fire extinguisher and hose uh, fire suppression system on the ship at any time, blindfolded if necessary. <laughs> And then I'll, uh, I'll agree to this. And I said, okay, you got it. And he, uh, during the, the mission, he would quiz me sometimes and ask me, you know, where these things were. And I, you know, I was a good student. I, I knew where all the fire extinguishers were. And of course, I never endangered the ship. But those were still considered the early days of Greenpeace when those of us in the crew who did things like that were referred to as the mystics. And uh, I used that praying on that fire ceremony to, uh, I think, affect the, the mission we we're on to Lorino, Siberia, to expose this illegal whale killing operation. And, uh, well, the uh, effects speak for themselves. That was the most uh, successful mission Greenpeace had ever done. It got the most publicity at 60 Minutes, plus every single news uh, station at the time, uh, networks, ABC, NBC, all of them, uh, CNN, had this as the main feature. And it, it was my film that they used in these stories. Well, now, John, on the first mission on mm -hmm. the Rainbow Warrior, when you were trying to save the dolphins and cut the nets, were the mm -hmm. Japanese up there, were they... Were they fishing for salmon? Was that what they were doing? Yeah, that's correct. I think they're called phalagic salmon at that point because they're, they're Finnish uh, migrating up river streams on the West Coast and they go out in the sea. And these factory boats just process uh, outrageous tonnage of fish. Now, uh, today, 90% of the world's great fish species are gone, just decimated by this type of fishing. So uh, we, we saw that happening uh, way back in the 80s, and uh, we're trying to put a stop to it. And I believe gill, gill netting is now, that type of drift netting is illegal. It was outlawed. And if there are people still doing it, I, I, I believe that it's illegally Okay, now your second uh, mission, the mm -hmm. really big mission up to Siberia, this very dangerous mission on the Rainbow Warrior, could you go over exactly what the uh, Soviets were doing with the whales and what happened on this mission? Yeah, sure. Uh, for listeners to this program, there's an excellent book that covers this in a whole chapter. It's called Greenpeace Captain. And it was written by Peter Wilcox, who was the captain at the time of this uh, operation. And it's, it's a real exciting book. Peter was the captain on the Arctic Sunrise that uh, was boarded by uh, Russian troops near their Gazprom oil drilling rig. And they spent uh, oh, a bunch of months, I think more than three months in Russian jails. You know, that story's in there, too. And the sinking of the Rainbow Warriors, uh, that story is in there. So um, we uh, were told that we could spend uh, three years in a Soviet jail uh, for piracy and other charges, you know, of illegally uh, entering their country without passports and that sort of thing. 
And I got alarmed at that because I had a, a young child and, um, you know, wife and I felt really duty bound to care for them. So I, when that was explained to me, I went to the captain and the head of the film division and I said, you know, I don't think I could do this part of the cruise. I, I got to I got to uh, think of my family because uh, I can't, the idea of spending three years in, in a, a Soviet jail in Siberia, you know, is kind of daunting. And so they, they said, okay. And after a day or so, they said, you know, John, we're sorry. We, you know, we can't find a backup guy. So uh, it, this is on you. Uh, if you want to go, just go. But uh, we would like it if you could stay and uh, go on this operation. And I said, okay, this operation was too important and I couldn't leave it. There was a CBC uh, Greenpeace cameraman, Ron Precious, who was the main cameraman at the time. And I was recording audio for him and shooting a little bit of film myself. And uh, he was later arrested on Lorino. So I, I got the job as the main cameraman. So that validated my gut feeling to go ahead and do this. And, um, you know, the prayers that I was praying with the Agni Hatra fire ceremony ship were for success for the mission and safety for the crew. And uh, given the dangers that we faced there, we had Soviet troops, uh, you know, like a, uh, a platoon pointing their Kalashnikovs at us. And um, they, they were arrested. Seven of the crew members that landed on the shore were arrested and put in a jail there. And we uh, went through this great adventure to escape the Lorino. We were chased by a, a cargo vessel that was trying to either ram us or or uh, block our passage out, out of Lorino. And then a, a Soviet uh, destroyer started following us at high speed, demanding that we stop or they'd fire on us. And uh, also an attack helicopter came after us and uh, my job was to film all this while it was happening, and that's what I did. Now, can you explain what the mission actually was? It sounds like a bunch of the crew members went ashore, but mm. you didn't. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, our intention was to expose this uh, whaling operation. And as I was filming all this uh uh, these events that I just described, uh, gray whales were surrounding our ship and breaching and, you know, spouting. I mean, it was so cosmic. Uh, one of the crew members uh, who I'm still friends with, uh, Dan Bergevin, he came up to me and he was like shaking me and said, John, you've got to get this on film. You, This is so weird. We're being chased by Soviet troops and, uh, you know, gunboats and, and these whales are breaching all around the Rainbow Warrior. And, um, that that's the uh, the beauty of the cosmic side of this whole thing. That that was going on at the time. <laughs> um, so the the crew members were arrested. They were held uh, for about a week while negotiations between Greenpeace and the Soviet government were going on. And uh, they they kindly uh, agreed to release. Uh, released the seven crew members, and we, we rendezvoused at sea midway in international waters, um, you know, to pick them up. And um, it was a few months later where there was a, a U.S. commercial flight that was uh, shot down 
in, in that vicinity because that's where uh, a big Soviet military submarine base was. And I think uh, you may remember that a, a U.S. congressman, a Republican congressman who was on that flight was killed. You know, a Soviet jet just flew up and, and shot this uh, this airliner down. And that that happened uh, nearby where we were at Lorino. So we, we were under considerable danger for whatever reason, cosmic or practical, uh, Soviets uh, let us go. I'm speaking with artist, activist, and filmmaker John Perulis. Today's show, The Rainbow Warrior, Early Campaigns. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, John, when a lot of the crew went ashore... What were they mm-hmm. intending to do ashore? To go up to the mink pens and, and film uh, the the whales being chopped up. And uh, their uh, camera equipment and still camera equipment were confiscated. So we never saw that film. But I went out in a Zodiac with the first mate who uh, was also an ex-Marine, had seen combat duty in Vietnam at Quezon. Anybody that knows about the Vietnam War knows that Quezon was one of the bloodiest encounters of the Vietnam War. And, uh, Bruce Abraham was the mate. He uh, he escaped that and uh, became uh, interested in Greenpeace, and he served, uh, you know, as a mate on the Rainbow Warrior. And uh, I, I was trying to film this. Uh, we drove up pretty close to the shore, and I could see the troops there and. Uh, you know, so I was trying to hide behind the rubber uh, sides of the, the Zodiac, which is a, a big rubber motorized raft, uh, you might say. And uh, Bruce just laughed at me and he said, look, stand up. He said, you know, just do your damn job. He said, uh, the bullets, uh, this rubber raft isn't going to stop the bullets if they shoot us. And I said, OK, Bruce. And, you know, I got up on my knees because, you know, the Zodiac's bouncing around and I, I, I was able to get some good enough shots that showed the mink pens, but uh, I couldn't see the whale operations, but the, you know, the, the whales were there and we, we saw a ramp. Uh, I think we did get a, a, a shot from the ship with the telephoto lens that showed uh, whale meat being hauled up on a, on a kind of like a railroad ramp of some sort where they were chopping up the meat and feeding it. So this was in violation to a treaty that the Soviets had signed at the time, uh, International Whaling Commission, IWC, and uh, they had banned killing of gray whales. So I think uh, the killing of gray whales stopped shortly after that, and now they're off the endangered species list today, which I think is a testament to the efforts of Greenpeace and other groups who are trying to promote saving these great creatures. Okay, so you had film of the Soviets feeding the whale meat to their mink operation, to the minks. Mm-hmm. Did Could you see them? How would they catch the whales? Uh, probably in the traditional way, w- with a whale boat, with a, uh, an explosive harpoon um, on, on the front of the whale boat, you know, and that that gets shot off uh, with an explosive charge and the bolt uh, lodges into the whale's body like a, a giant fishing rod, you might say. And then they use a 
motorized winch to haul the whale to the boat where it's uh, lifted aboard and they start processing it. They start chopping it up. And, oh, God, how horrible. Yeah. And then I guess, yeah. does the whale die immediately when they shoot it? I don't think so. I, I think there's, uh, you know, there's an agonizing period where the whale is fighting for its life. And How horrible. Yeah, there, there was research going on at the time. I know John Lilly uh, was a, a, a marine biologist researcher who was uh, making some significant inroads into showing how uh, whales and dolphins, uh, they have gigantic brains and we're exhibiting uh, advanced uh, cognitive skills, if you if you can say that. Um, so uh, they're sentient beings. Uh, they they have feelings. They raise their children. They they uh, care. That there's been many stories of uh, uh, dolphins, especially uh, saving down pilots or lost mariners. You know, they'll they'll tow. Uh, an injured human to safety. You know, many stories like that. You have to wonder, you know, what's behind that? What, what's really going on here? And uh, Greenpeace in its early phase was promoting that kind of uh, consciousness awareness of uh, these creatures and um, doing what it could to save them. You know, I'm 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 so happy that I was part of that effort at that time. And Paul Watson is still doing this type of work with Sea Shepherd, so the work the work's still going on. So now, how how did the um, how did the escape from Siberia proceed? You went back to the Rainbow yeah, Warrior, so it, and were you chased? Oh yeah, <laughs> we had a winch on the boat that we used to lower the Zodiacs from the, the rear deck of the boat into the water. We had a, three Zodiacs and, you know, they're powered by outboard motors and they they have pointy bows so they can cut through the sea and they're, they're fast. Uh, I was filming from that in Siberia and when we got back to the boat, they hauled it up and, uh, and you just scramble up the ladder with your camera gear. Uh, into the ship and then the Zodiacs hauled up and boy as soon as that happened we we took off because we were ordered by the Soviet military authorities to stop because we were going to be boarded so uh, Peter the captain radioed back to them and said no we're not going for that we're leaving goodbye and uh, so we fired up the engines and tried to get as much speed out of the boat as we can so there was a uh, commercial vessel, maybe three or four hundred foot vessel that was ordered to block our exit from this little uh, mini harbor at Lorino. And being uh, 150 foot and more maneuverable, we were able to uh, avoid it by playing this cat and mouse game uh, with this giant ship and the uh, tanker captain just got frustrated after a while and gave up because he, he wasn't making any progress. So we headed out to sea towards Nome, Alaska at full speed. And again, just being ordered by the Soviets to stop. And they sent a helicopter over us, a military helicopter, to radio to us and follow our progress. So that 
helicopter dogged us almost all the way out to international waters while a nearby destroyer, a Soviet destroyer, was called up. And we didn't see that at first. Uh, we, we were out of sight of land, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 uh, miles off the coast and just heading out. And then we saw the ship coming, the, the destroyer. And I became very, and it was gaining on us. It was, we figured it was doing about 20 knots to our 10 knots. And uh, you, you could see it uh, rapidly approaching us. And it was ordering us to stop or be fired upon and prepared to be boarded. And Peter just ignored those warnings and just kept heading the ship towards Nome. And I went to him and I said, hey, Peter, I think they're going to catch up to us and they'll confiscate our film and then we don't have any proof that we were actually here you know, other than our verbal testimony. And he said, yeah. He said, well, what are we going to do about it? And I said, well, um, how about if we prepare a Zodiac with enough gas to make it to Nome? And, you know, we're talking about uh, 100 miles, something, something on that order. So it was doable. I mean, it was a crazy idea, but doable. And, you know, supply the mate, who is uh, Jim Henry. I think Jim was the first mate. And he agreed to do this. And uh, we gave him enough food and water to make the trip and a, a ship's radio and a, and a compass. <laughs> and uh, he took off with the film and headed out to Nome while this warship was making gains on us. And once Jim took off, in the Zodiac with the film headed for Nome, uh, a huge fog bank just rolled in out of nowhere. And we lost sight of them and the helicopter that had been following us and the ship. And after a, a while, maybe an hour or less, the fog blew off and we saw the Zodiac in the distance and it was going around in circles. And, uh, as we approached it, we saw that Jim wasn't in it, and we became very alarmed, and we had to capture the boat and haul it back. But it was a, a real tricky thing to do that because it was at full throttle, and the the engine was locked in a hard turn, and it was just going around in circles. So Peter skillfully maneuvered the boat so that one of these arcs of the Zodiac going around in circles would bump the boat. And the third mate, Bruce Abraham, the ex-Marine from Quezon I was talking about, he gets ready, he times himself just perfectly, jumps off the boat, and lands right in the Zodiac. It breaks his leg, but he gains control of the uh, the engine, and he, he steers it back to us, and we haul him and, and the boat out of the water and continue on this mad pace uh, back to uh, Nome. And we didn't know what happened to Jim. You know, it was kind of distressing for me, being that that was my idea, but this is the kind of thinking that you have to do. It's even military-type thinking although the end product of it is not a life-denying, it's life-affirming. And so we saw the, the warship getting closer, and they, they broke off chase after we had reached international waters. And when we got to 
Nome, uh, we immediately gave the film to a crew member who flew to Anchorage and uh, had it processed. And it was shown on all the television stations. One of the stations, I forget which one, uh, their crew landed a helicopter in front of this crewman that was getting off of a flight. And they said, we'll pay you X amount of dollars for an exclusive on this story. Just give us the film. And the crewman was under orders from Greenpeace not to do that. I mean, our um, policy about film was never to sell any kind of exclusive story to freely distribute it without charge to any and all news outlets. So that's what we did. And while we're in a bar in Nome, uh, I'm walking outside and one of the crewmen comes to me and says, John, John, hurry up, come in. They're showing all your film. So I, I felt uh, just an enormous sense of relief. I can't tell you. You know, it's not like shooting video today where you could see your results instantly. When you shoot film, you're not seeing what you're getting. You have to take exposures with a light meter. You have to set your iris, you know, and your focus correctly. And I mean, I have been trained to do that, but it's different when you're in uh a combat type situation and you have to do those things and somehow maybe it was yogic training uh, you know i was able to breathe and stay focused and uh, all the events that i have just been going over are the things that i was filming so i was so happy to see that film and at that point the the negotiations that i had referred to earlier were happening and uh, these networks sent all their famous reporters out and they all boarded the boat and we took off for the meeting point in international waters between Lorino and Nome. And we got the crew and we learned that Jim was there. What had happened, how he was blown out of the boat was by that helicopter that hovered over him and the, the wash from the props of the a chopper blew him out of the Zodiac. He was wearing a survival suit and a life jacket. So he he was very visible and uh, they sent down a wire and he hooked onto it and uh, they hauled him up, up into the helicopter, which landed on this destroyer. It had a helicopter landing pad on the rear part of it. And they put him in the brig there and they returned him with the other six crew members who were arrested, and we didn't know what Jim Jim's fate was until that international meeting. And then we sailed back to Lorino and made history. <laughs> I'm speaking with artist, activist, and filmmaker John Perulis. Today's show, The Rainbow Warrior, Early Campaigns. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The president of Greenpeace USA, Steve Sawyer, who passed away recently, he he uh, contacted me in Hawaii where I was doing undercover work for Greenpeace Hawaii at the time to go on the 1985 Pacific Peace Voyage that was creating awareness of the dangers of nuclear testing and the harm that nuclear testing was doing, especially to indigenous populations in the Pacific. And so Steve uh, said he was impressed with the work I did on the Lorino and the Grey Whale thing and asked me if uh, I would consider joining the crew again in 1985 to 
film the that operation of the Rainbow Warrior. And of course, as you know, in July of that year, uh, the boat was bombed and sank by French uh, DGSE. That's uh, the French version of the CIA. You know, they had infiltrated our office in New Zealand, found out uh, the ship movements and the schedule and uh, when the best time to attack the boat, they did it late at night. Uh, my buddy, uh, Fernando Pereira, was killed uh, by one of the explosions that went off in the room that we were sharing. They they put two limpet mines on the boat, one on the side of the engine room and one underneath the shaft. And that, that is a military way of killing a boat. Uh, you know, if you blow the engine room and the shaft, that boat's gone. And... Fernando was uh, killed when the second uh, limpet mine went off. Uh, he had gone down to our uh, berth, which was uh, up just above the shaft. Hard place to sleep because you could always hear the rotation of the shaft. And uh, he was killed there. You were on this mission yes. to the South Seas. What was the mission? And this was in 1985. Right. Yeah, 1985, and the the uh, part of it that I was hired to do. Well, I was hired to go to uh, New Zealand and cover the the uh, attempt to stop the French from setting nuclear explosions under sea in Muroa. But uh, before that, uh, we went to at the request of Marshallese uh, uh, peoples on the island of Rongelap to. Uh, rescue them off their island, Rongelap, uh, uh, that was uh, radiated by uh, uh, a huge nuclear test on Bikini uh, Atoll, which was 100 miles to the east of Rongelap. So we uh, were requested to help them. So we sent the Rainbow Warrior there. I, I was again covering all this in, in 16 millimeter film. And I think the, the number of people was a, a less than 200. And I saw a lot of sadness there, you know, of babies that had been deformed by the nuclear blast uh, that happened in 1951 that caused this pollution on their island. Uh, it was called Castle Bravo. It was a five megaton blast. Uh, five megatons is the equivalent of a an unbroken freight train from New York to California loaded with high explosives. So if you can imagine that, that's that's what they did. And the the uh, Navy meteorologists had warned the people that actually approved the and, and fired the test not to do it that day because prevailing winds were blowing in a uh, eastward uh, direction right over Rongelap where there was this population and uh, they uh, disregarded that advice. They set the blast off. The elders uh, on the island, I met some of these people, uh, and I heard this with my own ears. They said they saw two suns in the sky that day. Uh, one was uh, the, the Bravo uh, thermonuclear blast, and shortly afterwards uh, began snowing on their island. Uh, it wasn't snow. It was white ash from the uh, vaporization of this atoll that Bravo just uh, devastated. And it fell to about the depth of four inches. Kids played in it. The, the adults didn't know what it was. Nobody told them anything. And they suffered severe radiation sickness, you know, hair loss, vomiting, uh, thyroid destruction, uh, you know, all, all this type of thing. 
they uh, the the navy did make some rudimentary attempts to bulldoze off uh, a, a few feet of all the soil on their island. I mean, this is where they've lived for centuries. Uh, and, um, you know, this is the, the peril that so many indigenous people look upon. They're, they're, they're used by the, the military corporate machine for its own purposes without regard for their life or safety. And they were allowed to return there, um, but then uh, they were still getting uh, sick from the effects of, uh, you know, the plutonium and the cesium and uh, strontium that had fallen on their island. Because you can't get rid of that stuff. It, it goes into the plant structures that, you know, the coconuts and the breadfruit and stuff that was growing there. So uh, nobody lives there. It's just a dead island now. Uh, I think a few Marshallese go back there just to, you know, the graves of their ancestors are still there and their houses um, are still there. But, of course, nobody lives there. It's like a Chernobyl in the Pacific Ocean. And it's very sad. We move these folks uh, 100 miles to the east of Rongelap uh, to another island in the Marshall chain called Majato. And that's where they live to this day. See, the French were still actively doing underground, uh, w really underwater nuclear testing in Mura, Muro Atoll uh, near uh, New Zealand. So we, uh, the second part of the leg of that trip in the Pacific was to expose uh, or try to prevent the tests from happening. And uh, the French military uh, decided that they didn't want us assisting the, the, the native population there uh, to uh, try to stop or draw attention to this testing, which is totally foolish. I mean, it's a, again, it's a rich marine environment. That's how these indigenous people survive. They fish. They, uh, th that's their form of hunting is, uh, you know, using the, the uh, crops that grow on the islands and fishing. And uh, nuclear testing is just such a uh, evil, foolish idea to do. And um, that's why I guess, uh, you know, when you put the military in charge of these things, they use military thinking to solve problems. And so, the, uh, easy for them to think that way, and the, their decision to uh, came out to blow up the boat and sink it. Uh, you know, but what that did was brought down the French government. Uh, it created a huge um, scandal in France at the time. France settled with Greenpeace for a multi-million-dollar fee. I think some of that money went to Fernando's uh, family. You mentioned Fernando. Wasn't he your roommate on the Rainbow Warrior? How is it that you survived all this? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sorry I, I left that out. But uh, after we had finished moving all the inhabitants from uh, Rongelap, uh, I was contacting my wife. We used a marine radio to contact uh, the states. And uh my wife had called me and, and urged me to come home because I, I'd been away too long and uh, my son uh, was already a toddler and uh, we were running out of money. Uh, Greenpeace wasn't paying a lot and I had to go home and go back to work and uh, you know help the family. So it wasn't a hard decision. I said, okay, 
And I told the crew and they were sad. They said, oh, man, we, you know, we wanted you to come down to New Zealand with us and keep filming. And um, I said, well, I'm sorry. You know, I just I just can't do it now, you know. So I left the boat and a month later, uh, that's when it was bombed and, and sunk. I, I'm sure they, they picked up another cameraman, Greenpeace picked up another cameraman in New Zealand, but uh, the uh, operation, as I understood it, was to just have uh, a bunch of ships and, uh, uh, you know, ships from uh, the, the um, indigenous people that live there trying to uh, interfere with the test by going over the exclusion zone, for instance, uh, that type of thing. Um, and see, the French didn't want us using the Rainbow Warrior to supply these smaller boats with water and food and uh, the means to stay out for an extended occupation. So that was the strategy there. So th there was no way to film anything because there was nothing to see. You, you know, the, the tests happened way underneath the sea and you might see, uh, you know, once it goes off, you might see some disturbance on the surface, but uh, I don't know if the boats are allowed to get anywhere near that. Uh, but they have a, a pretty wide exclusion zone, and even to invade that exclu exclusion zone a little bit is uh, cause for the military to, to uh, uh, you know, act forcefully, and that's what they did. Well, now, where exactly was the Rainbow Warrior when it was destroyed by the French? Oh, it was tied up at a dock in Auckland and um, uh, near the office, near the Greenpeace office. And it, you and I were having a discussion about infiltration uh, of, uh, you know, environmental and political action groups. And, um, you know, that was my first experience with uh, serious infiltration that resulted in the death of innocent people. And uh, there was a, a French uh, military or DGSE operative who uh, pretended to be an uh, environmental uh, activist, and she got hired to work in the Auckland office. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, anyone that gets to work there for Greenpeace. If you work on the office, you're invited on the boats, you know, you have free access. Uh, so she was uh, spying and, and create, creating dialogue that she fed to the team that uh, eventually sunk the boat. And uh, you, you had done a, a show with William Pepper, who uh, tried, uh, you know, worked for the King family to show that the FBI had had a hand in assassinating Martin Luther King. And uh, William Pepper said that, oh, if you're an activist group who is um, uh, seriously engaged with stopping the abuses and, and the evils of the uh, military corporate government we have, that, that you're guaranteed to be infiltrated. And I think that has been uh, a feature of our life, and it's gotten worse these days now. Um, so the Rainbow Warrior mission to New Zealand and the Marshall Islands, that wasn't your last mission with Greenpeace, was it? You mentioned a, a Las Vegas operation. Yeah, well, I, I think it was uh, early 90s was the Nevada test site. There was a huge 
uh, protests there, attended by many celebrities like Carl Sagan and uh, Martin Sheen. You know, I met all these folks and I shot video of them and we were outside of the gate of the Nevada test site to try to stop the nuclear tests that were going on. And eventually they did stop. Even underground nuclear tests were stopped. And uh, I, I attribute that to the pressure that anti-nuclear activists made over the years, including Greenpeace. There are other, many other groups and good people active in anti-nuclear warfare operations. But that, that was the last official thing I did for Greenpeace. John Perulis, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with John Perulis. Today's show has been The Rainbow Warrior, Early Campaigns. John Perulis is an artist, activist, and filmmaker. He has a varied career as a filmmaker, live video streamer, artist, and licensed contractor. He served on Greenpeace ships and land actions as a cameraman from 1983 to 1986. His film work has appeared in numerous environmental documentaries and news stories, including 60 Minutes. He has been a licensed contractor in California since 1984 and also works as a consultant to the Contractor State License Board. Currently, he maintains his contracting business as well as his video business, Brightpath Video. Visit his websites at brightpathvideo.com and brightpathdesign.com. That's brightpathvideo.com and brightpathdesign.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. You dig me? You got me?